4: Hey, everyone. This is part two of the Amy Fisher story. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I recommend starting there. Just a note that we discuss sexual violence and abuse in this episode.
0: The final chapter in the saga of the Long Island Lolita. Amy Fisher coming face to face with her victim. Just six
4: months after 17 year old Amy Fisher shot Mary Joe Buttafuco, the wife of her 38 year old boyfriend or statutory rapist based on his later conviction, Amy appeared before a judge for sentencing.
0: It was the first time Amy Fisher had seen Mary Joe Buttafuco since May 19, 1992. This time, the two met in a court to hear a judge sentence Amy Fisher.
1: You are a tragedy and disgrace to yourself, to your family. To your friends and to society. And you deserve no less than the maximum sentence I can impose by law.
4: Her punishment? 15 years in prison. But going away wouldn't end the media frenzy around Amy or help her escape that label, the Long Island Lolita, that still follows her to this day.
5: I'm Susie Vanikaram. And I'm Jessica Bennett.
4: And this is in retrospect, where each week we revisit a cultural moment from the past that shaped us. And that we just can't stop thinking about. This week, we're talking about Amy Fisher and how she came to be known as the Long Island Lolita. But we're also talking about the way that word, Lolita, and that trope is used to paint young girls as precocious and seductive. This is part two. Jess, I've been thinking about kind of what happens to Amy Fisher and all of this, right? And that she's punished, but she's punished so much more heavily than Joey. But a Foucault who she claims really was essentially a co-conspirator, right? She claims that he talked a lot about wanting his wife gone, that he talked about his insurance policy, that he wanted her dead. And so she comes up with this plan to like ingratiate herself with him or to please him. This is really something she does because she's doing something that he wants. Right. And she goes away for five to 15 years and he gets four months, right? And that that is really telling about the way society sort of looked at her versus him. So how
5: does this compare to other people in similar situations at that time or I well, don't know if anything could be really similar but Well you know like, what I mean. there
4: are actually things that are like not exactly similar but give you a sense of how disproportionate the way she was punished was and sort of what that said about the kind of bloodthirst around her. Mm -hmm. So um, another really famous tabloid case at the time was the preppy killer, Robert Chambers. And for people who don't remember that case, Robert Chambers killed a woman that he was having a sexual encounter with in Central Park and claimed it was consensual rough sex. He choked her to death. So it doesn't seem like a consensual encounter. But he got the same sentence as... Amy Fisher, he literally killed someone. I mean, she did try to kill someone, but it's interesting that they got the exact same
6: right. sentence,
4: but the other thing that's interesting is she got 2 million for bail and he got 150,000. I mean, that's a really big contrast in terms of how dangerous they assessed her to be as compared to him, who was an actual killer.
5: So this also reminds me of what I think was the biggest tabloid story before Amy Fisher, which was William Kennedy Smith, JFK's yes. nephew, who was accused of raping a woman on the beach in Palm Beach, Florida, where he was with his uncle, Ted Kennedy. Yes. And he was acquitted in, I think, one of the shortest deliberation periods ever in less than 80 minutes by a jury.
4: Yeah, and I think it's interesting because a lot of people have kind of forgotten about this case. But to give you an idea of just how big a case it was at the time, mm-hmm. when I was in high school, I had a poster in my room <gasps> that said, William Kennedy Smith, meet Thelma and Louise. And it was a picture of Thelma and Louise. I mean, what at the time, it was a very very prominent case. If you cared about women and rape and feminist issues, you were following it because it felt like he got away scot-free because he was a Kennedy.
5: And Thelma and Louise, that was basically like saying he should be
4: killed? Yes, basically. They had a gun in their hand. It was like a picture of Thelma and Louise with a gun in their hand. I should have been clear about that. Like it was like a photocopied poster, like William Kennedy Smith meet Thelma and Louise. Wow.
5: That's like very scum manifesto of you
4: well you can imagine a boarding school i was like really like out there
5: okay and so my sense is that joey you know he goes to jail for four months he gets out he like moves on and this continues to follow amy into here we are in 2023 talking about this case
4: Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that the only reason he kind of doesn't fade into obscurity is he really tries to stay in the spotlight, right? He moves to L.A., he tries to become an actor, he has a public access show, he loves the attention. He's constantly giving press conferences, and he just never stops trying to be in the spotlight, whereas she has attempted in various different ways over the years to kind of move on. And one of the things she said in an interview at some point was, Anytime he does something crazy or he does something buffoonish or he gets arrested, all across the newspapers, again, it's the Long Island Lolita. Like, I'm the one that can't get away from this, even though he's the one that is often keeping this story in the headlines. And that this is a label she just cannot escape for the rest of her life. And it's also so recognizable, right? Like, the minute you put Long Island Lolita in the headline— most people who were alive during that story have an immediate recollection of her. They can right. picture her, the long hair and the bangs and the Long Island of it all. And I think you were telling me earlier that, you know, some of the adjectives used for
5: Amy in all of these stories and newscasts about her were things like sick, spoiled, whore, teenage troublemaker, arrogant, you know. Perverted, revolting. Exactly.
4: Like all the adjectives used for her are about how crazy she is, how sex hungry she is. But They also really go out of their way to generally refer to her as a woman. The prosecution only ever refers to her as a woman. She's very rarely called a girl, although she is quite literally still. girl. She's under 18. But there's this real sort of need to make her into an adult with agency and to make her into this like very sexually aggressive being because there's no way that she can be a victim, right? She has to be the perpetrator. And that's partially because she has done something violent, right? The thing about this case that's complicated is that there is this sort of like innocent woman, Mary Jo, who she has you know, harmed in this like extremely aggressive way. And so it is, I think, impossible for the public imagination to hold the idea that both Mary Jo and Amy might be victims, not that Mary Jo is the victim and Amy is this sort of monster who has wrought vengeance on her.
5: Yeah. What stands out is that in the beginning, I'm sort of thinking of her as a villain, but. As you begin to learn all these different little things about the case and her background and how she was treated, and you peel back these layers, it's almost like she becomes more of a victim. And yet she never totally sheds that villain archetype or whatever you want to call it.
4: Totally, because it feels like when you go back and read the coverage now that she's as much sort of being punished and villainized for being this sexual being as she is for what she did to Mary Jo. It's like there's this sense that because she is seen as promiscuous, she needs to be like punished and put in her place, right? That it's like, She can't just be like a teen girl who came to that promiscuity through abuse, which we know was in her background, or because she's been sort of like victimized by Joey. The fact that she's a prostitute is meant to indicate that she's some sort of harlot that deserves to be punished. And in fact, there's like this really interesting detail that when the prosecutor is trying to convince the judge to give her a $2 million bail. One of the justifications for that he uses is that she's a prostitute. And he's like, if we let her out, she will just fade into a life of prostitution and never be found again. As if she's not literally like the most famous person in the country. Like there is no way for her to fade into obscurity. She's on every newspaper cover in New York City. But it's like they continuously go back to this prostitution as a way to make it seem like she's this deranged, sick person that needs to be, like,
1: boxed up and put away. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One.
6: Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart.
3: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year
5: Okay, so, I mean, I think we should talk about that directly because we're talking about this really complicated case. There are many things at play here. But we are largely talking about one thing, which is the Lolita trope. Yes. And I almost think we need to pause for a minute to remind our listeners and ourselves, maybe, the origins and connotations of that word. Yes,
4: of Lolita, which is from the 1955 novel written by the Russian-American novelist Vladimir Nabokov. The book, for those who don't remember, is about a middle-aged professor who becomes obsessed with a 12-year-old girl who he nicknames Lolita. Eventually, he becomes her stepfather and then kidnaps and sexually abuses her. And what's so interesting about the Lolita trope is that it is quite literally a book about a man who kidnaps and rapes a child. But over time, over the course of the last 70 years, the definition of a Lolita has changed so much that it is no longer considered the term for someone who's abused. But instead, Merriam-Webster literally defines it as a precociously seductive girl.
5: Today. That is the 2023 today. That is the today to definition clear. of it.
4: So it's become this shorthand for a girl who's sexual before her time, like a seductress, when that's fundamentally not what the character is in the book. And in fact, in my conversation with Amy Pagnosi, that's the New York Post reporter we spoke to earlier, she mentioned that she really fought the New York Post on using the term Lolita for that infamous headline.
6: Yeah, I was a lit major in school, and I was one, always one of my favorite books, and it's about a pedophile, so I kept saying this is not... What that means, but you know, I think it's it's something that a lot of men like to think that women that age actually want them.
5: I think that my most vivid recollection of that idea of the Lolita is the movie American Beauty, which I loved growing up. Oh, interesting. Starring Kevin Spacey, who we, along with many people, think of in a new way now. But he's basically playing a man who has a midlife crisis and becomes completely infatuated with his teenage daughter's best friend.
4: So you may not know this because I did not know this until we were researching this episode, but American Beauty was inspired by the Amy Fisher story. The screenwriter okay. said that he saw this oh. comic book that was released after she went to prison, and it sort of inspired him. A comic book about Amy Fisher? About Amy Fisher and Joey Betafruccio. Okay. And it inspired him to finish the movie. This is Alan Ball, the screenwriter? Yeah, so he, there's actually a quote from him, and I'll read you some of it. He says, I had been working on the basic premise for eight years. The genesis of the idea for me was the Amy Fisher-Joey Barifuco business in New York City. When I was living there, I was working at Adweek, and I came out one day, and some guy was selling a comic book about Amy and Joey. On the one side was this virginal-looking Amy and a big, leering, lecherous, predatory Joey. And you flip it over, and he's all buttoned up, and she's all tarted up in predatory, slutty vixen. Wow. I remember thinking the truth is somewhere in those, and we will never know what it is. Wow. Fascinating. Isn't that fascinating? Which is also like, is the truth somewhere in the middle? We know that she was a teen girl. So again, it's this need to kind of turn the teen girl into someone who is tempting, who is seducing, who is calculating, who has agency, and is in fact the instigator, when in reality that is rarely the case, right? Like young girls are rarely these like, evil geniuses who are trying to, like, seduce men. I mean, and even if they are, by the way,
5: you're a grown-ass adult. So maybe, yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly, have a little perspective. <laughs> yeah, good point. But this is far from the first film to be inspired by the Amy Fisher story, correct?
4: Yes, this is far from the only movie to be inspired by Amy Fisher. In fact, the most famous movies that were inspired by her are these three TV movies that came out Right after she went to jail, they came out sort of one right after the other. Two of them, I think, aired on the same night, and one of them aired like the oh, week wow. before. Okay. As you might remember, the way that Amy makes bail is she sells her version of the story. And then Joey and Mary Jo Budofuco sell their version of the story. And then there's a third version that gets made. And this one is based on Amy Pagnosi's New York Post columns. And she's actually a character in the film. Here's Amy again. I got a lot of offers.
6: From a lot of different people and the one from abc seemed to be the best one i i really really loved being a columnist more than anything but the movie money was great because all i had to do was give them access to the notes that I had. The the screenwriter was wonderful. I actually think of all of the three movies, it was the best one. I agree. And the person who played me was incredibly nice. I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, do we need three Amy Fisher movies? Do we need one Amy Fisher movie? No, of course not. There were much, much more important things to cover.
5: Yeah, I mean, that's a very good point. But it really shows how much the Amy Fisher story literally became entertainment
4: Yeah, I mean, these TV movies were really popular and starred pretty big-name actresses at the time. Drew Barrymore starred in one. Alyssa Milano was in one of the other ones, right? Yeah, so Alyssa Milano was in one called Casualties of Love, the Long Island Lolita story. Okay.
5: It's just that I like older guys. I mean, the boys in my school, one, two, three, you know, and it's, like,
4: over. And then there was a little-known actress named Noelle Parker who was in the lethal Lolita version
5: I mean, I know what I did, but I just don't understand how it all began. And then Drew Barrymore is in the most popular one, the Amy Fisher story. The Amy Fisher story. Joey is the only man I love, and I will do whatever it takes to get his wife out of the way. Which, side note, interesting, because Drew, as a child actress, has talked, I think in more recent years, about being very sexualized from a young age.
4: Yes, and actually one thing that's interesting is that in the research, Sharon, who works on the show, found this clip of her talking about playing Amy Fisher. And in that interview with Conan O'Brien, he is sexualizing her in really creepy ways. Like he's asking about her tattoos in this creepy way. And it should be noted that Drew Barrymore was also underage. Like she must have been maybe 18 when she did this interview. So she is in fact in playing this character being sexualized and then experiencing the same sort of media reaction to it, which is like a weird meta thing that goes on. But what's also interesting is that these films are so much more popular than the networks expect, right? They all air in primetime, which is just not a thing you would see. Like now they would just become Lifetime movies or whatever, but they Mm -hmm. all air on primetime television. They do really well. And in some ways, they kind of are the beginning of this true crime era that now is so huge, especially in podcasts. But this is the beginning of entertainment executives beginning to understand how much of an appetite there is for these true stories. And actually, this is part of a genre of film in the 90s that becomes really popular. It starts in 1992, the year that Amy shoots Mary Jo. In fact, in the same month, There is this movie Poison Ivy also starring Drew Barrymore that comes out about a teenage girl who becomes obsessed with her friend's father and she murders her friend's mother to try and get to the father. (laughs) So, again, this seductress, this like young girl.
5: And this is not based on Amy and Joey's story. This just happens to be coming out at the same time.
4: Yes. Isn't that crazy? It literally comes out the month that this incident occurs. And
5: this is also the fatal attraction era, right?
4: Yes. So this is right after Fatal Attraction. Amy okay. is constantly kind of compared to Fatal Attraction in okay. early coverage before she kind of becomes her own cautionary tale. Right. She we is- love
5: it. A- sexy murderous woman yes
4: okay. but also like vengeful the, yeah. essentially they are all the original e right they are the women who tempt these right. good men away from their good wives and they lure them into this horrible life that otherwise they would not be lured into it's just like really okay. removes okay. agency from men which is i think why men love these stories right they're never responsible for their bad behavior
5: well to be fair i think women love these stories too
4: yeah, it is true. I don't know why women love these stories. It's not
5: largely men who are watching these, is it? Um, I and mean, maybe we don't know, but I bet it's
4: not. I think it's both. I, yeah, I definitely don't think it's just like men who love these stories. Like,
5: wasn't there another one? Wasn't there yes. a Crush or something like that?
4: Yes. Was there one so then, with
5: Alicia Silverstone?
4: Yes, yes. And Carrie Elway's, who I love from The Princess Bride. Oh. That movie was inspired by Amy Fisher, or at least compared to it. It came out in 93. It's about this precocious child who is played by Alicia Silverstone in her first movie. She becomes obsessed with Carrie Elway's, who's a writer, who's like renting an apartment from her family. And she's like a genius, which is also very weird. Like the need to make them really smart, I think is fascinating because, again, it's why they're able to manipulate these perfectly innocent men into doing these like outrageous things who can't keep it in their pants. And then there's like this weird scene where she tries to kill his girlfriend by trapping her in a room with bees. I mean, it's oh, it is an
5: absolutely yes. oh my absolutely wild tale. Also, I was just going to say about Alicia Silverstone, such an interesting character also in the sort of Drew Barrymore vein because remember that Aerosmith song yes. that I loved, Crazy, and yes. the music video for it where she's like this hot I think, underage or much younger.
4: I mean, I think she looked like she was, like, 12 at the time. And with Steven Tyler. Yes, who, you know the thing about Steven Tyler, right? Um, Oh, I forget. So, Steven Tyler, in fact, was recently sued by a woman... Who says that he adopted her when she oh, was I read underage? This.
5: Okay, okay. So that in order to be in a relationship could, with her,
4: in order to be in a relationship with her, and to take her out on the road, so he became her literal a guardian. Guardian, I read the story. I read the story. Okay,
5: and he is also the father of Liv Tyler, who was in the crazy video with Alicia Silverstone. Right? Yes, I remember thinking they were like the hottest thing. Like that well, I wanted to be that like that yeah that was video so
4: was so cool and I think like music videos don't really have the same cachet they did then but that music video was in itself like a huge cultural moment like everybody saw it it was like a very popular video I think it was the number one video okay it was like at the height of MTV when MTV has really become its own right. art of the zeitgeist so that video really was something that everybody saw So it's
5: like these things are all circling
4: and it's like Amy Fisher and Joey Benefico are somewhat at the center. Somewhat at the center, right? They sort of inspire but also reflect what's kind of happening in the culture at the time, which is this kind of sexualization of young girls in this very specific way that's not as innocent children but as seductresses and temptresses in their own right. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I think is so interesting about the movie Crush is that there's actually a review of it I found, which I think speaks to how disturbing these movies kind of were and were never acknowledged to be. Like, I saw Crush when it came out, and I remember liking the movie. I was, mm-hmm. like, a teen girl at the time, right? The critic writes, the movie is virtually an invitation to child abuse. In shot after shot, Shapiro pans his camera up one side of Silverstone's body and down the other as if it was perfectly all right for us to visually caress the thighs of a 14-year-old. Wow,
5: this was in the Washington Post? Yes. Hal Hinston. I'm looking at it now.
4: Yeah, Thanks, Hal. And also, the way that quote ends is he says, my guess is that most people will find the whole business creepy, and even creepier still, the people who made it. But in fact, people didn't find them creepy, and the movie did well. It was a success.
5: I mean, I guess it's not really that surprising that people loved those movies at the time. They were fantasy. There was something enticing about how dark and twisted they were.
4: Yeah, and it's a little taboo. You know, even though these girls were always punished in the end, there was something compelling about seeing girls who were aggressive and open about wanting men. Like, as a teen girl, you didn't see that very often. And in a lot of ways, that's what was underlying the coverage of Amy.
5: Oh, that's a good point. Like, of course, she's punished for the actual crime she commits, but one thing the media continues to fixate on is how freely she talks about sex and wanting it.
4: Yeah, which now, of course, we would interpret as an immediate red flag of some kind of trauma in her past. But back then, that was just another freakish point to zero in on. And to
5: make fun of. Like, don't you remember how this became a huge bit on SNL?
3: You've seen the other three. Now the fourth network presents the fourth Amy Fisher story. Tori Spelling is Amy Fisher in Aaron Spelling's. Amy
4: Fisher, one oh five one six. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the other side of the coin, right? So on the one hand, Amy is being presented in this sort of like very villainous way, but also the story lends itself to comedy, right? So the late night comics love it because honestly, the name is so ridiculous, right? Like Butafuco is yeah, a ridiculous Buttafuko. name. Joey Coco Puff sounds yeah. funny, and so his name. Alone just becomes a punchline that the late night comics are using over and over again. Now, number three, get one more cheap laugh by saying the word, Badafuka. Also, a thing we haven't really talked about is there's this real obsession about Amy and Joey's accents at the time. They have these like, oh. very thick Long Island accents okay. that I don't think were all that commonly heard outside of the tri-state area. yeah. And so their accents are really rife for impressions, right? I mean, you can really hear the Long Island in them, and that culture feels very unique to the rest of the country. And because I love it so much, let's listen to this great example from the sketch comedy show In Living Color with Jim Carrey.
2: I made me Fisher. You know the Long Island Lolita? And this is by a over here.
1: Right!
2: Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's leesa.com acom forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.
1: Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. So
5: I want to take us back to the case itself. This obviously becomes a huge media spectacle. I don't think I had any idea that that many works of film were based on this story. But you mentioned, Susie, that, you know, Amy is really never able to live a normal life after
4: this. So what actually happens? So she tells her own story a few different ways. She does an interview with Inside Edition. There's also a book she writes in 1994 with Sheila Weller, who is a very well-known journalist and has gone on to write a number of books about very famous women, Carrie Fisher, Carol King, Joni Mitchell, Christiane Amanpour. And it's really the first time that Amy extensively tells her side of the story. She was raped by a handyman in her home when she was around 13, This book reveals that she had also been sexually abused by a person close to the family when she was very young, starting around three or four years old. And also, it just paints a very different picture of Amy. It's a much more nuanced portrait of her as shy and naive, still sort of hoping that Joey's going to come in and save the day or that Joey still loves her, desperate for Kind of male approval from anyone who's willing to give it to her. And it sort of starts to give you a hint that she has some mental illness that's untreated and contributes to her thinking that, you know, this shooting never registers for her as a real crime when she's doing it. She doesn't really have a sense of consequences when she embarks on this thing that forever changes her life. It's almost like. She's so naive and so detached from reality. She's more worried about her parents grounding her than she is about going to jail. And the interviews in the book take place right before she goes to jail and then continue throughout her first couple years. So it also describes what that transition is of going to jail and kind of the shock of that. So when is she actually released from prison? So she's released in 1999, and interestingly, Mary Jo, who spends years talking about how sick she is and saying that she doesn't feel safe with Amy out and about, is instrumental in her release. She appears at a parole hearing for her. Amy apologizes to her directly. They have this, like, moment in court, and it is ultimately what causes the judge to decide she's served enough time and change her deal and release her. What happens then? What does she do with her life? So she actually marries a man she met on an online dating site after she got out of prison. He's an older man, another one. He's like a videographer, like I think like a mostly wedding videographer. Okay. They have three kids. At some point, they moved to Florida. And been keeping with every other man in her life, eventually— He betrays her. There's a period where they are separated in 2007, and she does this weird thing. Her and Joey do this weird thing where they pretend to get back together because they're trying to shop a reality show. And her husband says that this makes him angry, and so he releases one of their sex tapes. So, like every oh, other no. man that she's ever trusted, he essentially betrays her with revenge porn, and he releases this sex tape of her, but it is hugely successful. and The sex tape? The is. sex tape is successful. What does that
5: mean, successful? It like, is, he releases it on the it internet? I guess it makes
4: money, and lots of people watch it. Okay. But, you know, despite the fact that the tape is released without her consent, she decides to lean into it and start doing porn regularly, and she says about it at the time... I have two choices. I can sit there and say it doesn't exist, which it does exist, you know, or I can do the intelligent thing, which for Amy Fisher means making the best of the situation and making money. So she, so she starts doing porn. Starts doing porn. She does her own pay-per-view adult film called Amy Fisher, totally nude and exposed.
5: Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, she
4: makes a handful of adult movies that starts in 2007, but in 2011 she stops making the films. She decides to leave the porn industry. And in 2015, she gets a divorce, and then she moves home to Long Island. And the New York Post continues to hound her. And the last published report about her is a New York Post piece where they have found her doing camgirl stuff. That's before OnlyFans. So, you know, she's doing, like, sort of sex work through camgirl. They portray it as, like, incredibly seedy. It's, like, a very sad story story. They confront her. She denies that it's her, even though she used her name and they have her image. And she's living with her mom again, actually. And that's really the last we hear from Amy Fisher. When is that? That's in 2017. Then after that, I think that year or the year following, she changes her name. She goes to court. She solicits to have a name change. And she no longer does press. And that's really when she stops being in the public eye. The thing that's interesting is that many of the occasions where she goes back into the public eye, right? The sort of like the porn and the reality show are occasions when she's trying to make money from her past. Like Mm -hmm. one thing Mm -hmm. you realize is that she goes to jail when most kids are going to college. She doesn't have anything to fall back on. So the only thing she has to kind of fall back on is her notoriety. So it's interesting that finally in the late 2010s, she just gives up on that and decides to move on. And when she's contacted to be part of projects that Mary Jo or Joey are still willing to do, she refuses.
5: Okay, so Joey's still doing interviews? Is he still? Like, what, what's his deal?
4: Yes, Joey and Mary Joe are still somewhat in the public eye. So Joey is essentially just like a buffoon for a long time. As I mentioned, he moves to California to become an actor. He has some bit parts. He is arrested again in 1995 for soliciting an undercover cop as a prostitute. And uh, nice. um, he is obviously in violation of his probation at that time. So he goes back to jail. He's just generally like a very sketchy dude. Mary yep. Joe eventually divorces him in 2003. Mary Joe stood by Joey for such a long time, and I think that's right. also like a really interesting part of the story that we haven't had a chance to explore, which is that there's this sort of psychological thing that happens with Mary Joe where she is so defensive of Joey. It's almost like she needs to deny the affair to somehow not give Amy any excuse for what she did. So for so mm-hmm. many years, she denies that the fair even happened. She stands by mm-hmm. him. She calls Amy names. But then eventually she realizes that Joey is a sociopath. Like literally releases she calls a book a called Getting It Through My Thick Skull, Why I Stayed, What I Learned, and What Millions of People Involved with Sociopaths Need to Know. So okay. she writes that okay. book in 2009. Wait, sorry,
5: one clarification. So is she still with Joey when she's helping...
4: Amy to get out of jail? Yes, she is still with him. I think that's one of the interesting details about okay. it. Okay, She doesn't divorce him until 2003. And then in 2005, she goes on Oprah and tells her story mm-hmm. for you know, some reason, like a where are they now or whatever. And actually, a plastic surgeon reaches out to her after that appearance because she still has paralysis on one side of her face. And okay. he offers to fix it. And she accepts. And in fact, later on, there's a an Oprah show where the results of her plastic surgery are revealed. So it's still kind of like they just
5: can't stop doing this media site. Like they're trapped in this. They're kind
4: of trapped in it, Endless.
5: And then the next generation becomes part of it. Yeah. I mean,
4: obviously, we don't talk about the Buttafuoco children that much, right? They were nine and 12 when this happened. And at the time, we just didn't really think about generational trauma. But they saw their mother shot. They saw their father behave like an absolute creep on television for years. And then, you know, this story follows them forever. I mean, they have the Buttafuoco last name. In fact, the son has changed his last name. You cannot find him.
5: Right. Also, it's not like Smith. Like, this is the most recognizable. I mean, this is the same when I was reporting on Monica Lewinsky. Yeah. Same deal. It's like that name is so specific. So loaded. And memorable. (laughs) Yes. It's
4: impossible to run away from. You know, so either you change your name like the son does, or you do what the daughter did, which is just accept that it's part of her history and talk about it publicly. You know, in twenty nineteen, actually Mary Jo and Joey and the daughter do a special on ABC called Growing Up Butafuko, where Jesse, the daughter, shares what it was like for her to be part of the story.
5: So the daughter actually has a relationship with her father?
4: Yeah. Jesse was talking to him at the time of the special, but within a year, she says on a podcast that she stopped speaking to Joey, that she's basically gone no contact and that he's toxic and she no longer wants to have any relationship with him. I mean, good for her. Yeah. I mean, she's talked extensively about what the shooting and all that followed it did to her. You know, she went through a lot of depression and anxiety. She had eating disorders and addiction to alcohol. So, you know, you can see why she blames him for a lot of that. It's really like Jesse's experience shows us how
5: this story really continues to affect everyone involved.
4: I mean, ultimately, I think the option Amy has chosen to try and live a quiet and private life as much as that's even possible for her is the choice I would make, too. But I'm sure it's not easy, and I don't think there is a right answer here. So I did try and contact Amy for this story because I wanted to let her have the last word if she wanted it. But I wasn't able to reach her, so I found something she said in 2008 when a reporter asked her if she still cared about the public perception of her. You know what, at this point, you know, I've—this
5: is—maybe this is awful to say, you know, I, I am known for something that is not a good thing. So, you know, I've had a lot of negative media attention. People have said a lot of horrible things about me, so over the years, you know, it's it's made my shell a little bit
4: hardened. And no, I don't care what people think about me anymore. You know, if people like me, that's wonderful, and I think I'm a nice person. And I think because of everything I've been through in my
6: life, that it's made me actually a kinder, more understanding person.
5: That's so interesting. I mean, I hope for her sake that is true, but I do wonder if she'd still say that today. Susie, I know you mentioned we tried to contact her for the podcast, but maybe it's worth saying, you know, Amy, if you're listening, we would still love to talk to you. And I do hope for her sake that she has been able to move on. Yeah, me too.
4: And I think that's a good place to leave it for today. This is In Retrospect. Thanks for listening. Is there a cultural moment you can't stop thinking about and want us to explore in a future episode? Email us at inretropod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at inretropod.
5: If you love this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. If you hate it, you can post nasty comments on our Instagram, which
4: we may or may not delete. You can also find us on Instagram at Jessica Bennett and at suzybnyc. Also, check out Jessica's books, Feminist Fight Club and This Is 18. In Retrospect is a production of iHeart Podcasts and The Meteor. Lauren Hansen
5: is our supervising producer. Derek Clements is our engineer and sound designer. Sharon Atia is our researcher and associate producer.
4: Our executive producer from The Meteor is Cindy Levy. Our executive producers from iHeart are Anna Stumpf and Katrina Norbell. Our artwork is from Pentagram. Additional editing help from Mary Dew and Mike Cosperelli. Sound correction and mastering by Amanda Rose Smith. We are your hosts, Susie Bannekaram and Jessica Bennett. We're also executive producers. For even more,
5: check out inretropod.com. See you next week.
1: Hey guys, back to the playground again, huh? Yep. You
2: know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some
3: waves. So we could go surfing.
4: Oh. <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood
1: forest would be cool.
3: Ah, ski slopes. Let's
1: do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait.
3: Did we just invent California?
2: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
1: So, should we go electric?
0: I think we should go electrified with Toyota.
1: Electrified?